Hello, folks. Uh, welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. Uh, we are doing a very special uh, two-part recording of our reading of The Man Without Qualities, uh, Robert Musel's book. And uh, we are listening to God Save Emperor Francis, the Kaiser Hymna, the official hymn of the Austro- Austro-Hungarian Empire, where the location and Takes, you know, the, the book takes place in this Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of it, the last year of it, and this is sort of like the the hymn to the empire, the ending of the empire. And we'll be listening to some more music uh, a little bit later on. So, enjoy. All right, so the man without qualities, uh, big fatty, a big fatty, a big fat book. We'll be talking uh, volume one today. Rob and I, Rob is in Portland, um, hunkering down during this pandemic. Uh, I'm in New York, hunkering down as well. New York is uh, very, very strange, very quiet, which is wonderful, but for bad reason. Um, I'm sure Portland has a similar eerie feeling, and we're doing this book, which is a very eerie book in a way. It's kind of basically the end of an empire, the end of an age, the last year of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, strange things are happening. So there's interesting parallels to what's happening now. Of course, very different at the same time, but it feels like the end of something and maybe the beginning of something different, but what we don't know yet. So this book is a very interesting kind of um, look into this kind of feeling. We're beginning to actually feel what people felt around 1913. Yeah, different, I think it's a different thing, right, Rob? There's definitely some differences, but at the same time, many similarities. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a, a few thoughts is, is one just about this book itself, and I think um, I've... I've been seeing it uh, on bookshelves for 25, 30 years and, and, and kind of um, sizing it up as a, as a formidable opponent and, and for the most part shying away from it. And I think a lot of people when they think of, you know, um, the masterpieces of modernism, they think of, um, you know, Joyce and Proust and they think of perhaps um, T.S. Eliot and the Wasteland. And, and unfortunately, The Man Without Qualities is 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 in that uh, elite category, um, but I don't think it's read um, as much. And I think partly because of the length, I think partly because of um, uh, we didn't get a great translation until um, I think this present volume was uh, released in the 80s, I believe. So I think that explains some of it. Um, and I think also at times, um, certainly in, in the United States, 
German literature, I think, is um, sort of gets uh, overlooked a bit. Um, but I think the, the the piece that's so interesting to me, you talked about this book addressing kind of modern life. And I, and I think that the fascinating part of, as I work through this book, is that um, Musil in in right after World War One is putting this book together, and he'd been a young man uh, in the lead up to World War One, um, and so he's he's grappling with modern life, and and so Habsburg Vienna is um, uh, the center of this rich, rich intellectual life, and these intellectuals are grappling with the end of the nineteenth century with this movement from an industrial economy, or excuse me, from an agrarian economy to an industrialized world. You, you, you have no doubt at this point that religion is uh, a marginalized piece yeah. of, of life. In fact, so, in fact, many of the characters, um, when they do think about God or mention God or prayer or, even, or, or soul, which we'll talk about much more later, they they do it apologetically. They like, yeah. oh, sorry, I mentioned that. I didn't mean to, or you know, pardon me for mentioning God. <laughs> totally. And and the the piece that I think I think readers should should um, if they haven't read this book or or are are thinking about, yeah, I don't know. I think the piece that is so fascinating and is so engaging for us today is that I think it's very easy to think of 1914 um, as you know, eons and eons ago, as having some relevance for our current life, but but you know, look, we're we're so modern and we're we're in the digital world, yada yada yada. But what really strikes me is the questions that these characters are struggling with, and the questions that preoccupied Musil are still completely relevant and completely unanswered. That that I always thought of modernism as something that that you know occurred in the earliest 20th century and and was essentially blotted out by World War II and and the consequences and the effects of that war but what i'm realizing is that the questions that are raised in this book are completely unanswered and that what it makes me think is that we are still in the unveiling of the modern world mm. and 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 we've subdivided it into you know, postmodernism, or we've subdivided it into the various economic and technological waves that have hit us, but we have not philosophically dealt with, mm -mm. absorbed, or settled any of the questions that um, that that were that were percolating. They were, of course, percolating in a very sophisticated way because this was Vienna, and this was you know, the world of cafes and this world of, of uh, a confluence of so many amazing characters. I, I wouldn't say that we have the same sophistication today in grappling with these questions, but they still exist. And I, as, as our friends on Twitter were reading the book in the last few months, I'd constantly see posts where it's obvious people were finding amazing relevance. They were saying, wow, this reminds me of Donald Trump or my mm. goodness, he predicted, you know, working from home. Um, all of these, I, I mean, the part that really, I mean, the part, the many parts that struck me was um, the fact that he he had um, uh, a character, um, Moose Brugger, this, this um, murderer. Yeah, mm -hmm. this murderer who becomes a celebrity. And it was so fascinating to me. I, I really thought that that was a very recent contemporary phenomenon, the interest in people like Ted Bundy or, 
even the Unabomber to a certain extent. But no, there it was. He mm. he was all over this almost a hundred years ago. That so there's something about modern society, and and this is a whole theme that I can also throw out there and maybe leave it to you, Roman. Is the the unreality of contemporary life, the pseudo reality, right? That we're all grappling with, and and it it occurs to you here now that we're I don't I don't think we should spend too much time on it, but we are in the middle of a global pandemic. I'm sure people probably want a relief from it to listen to this podcast, but there is a pseudo reality to to being quarantined in your house and just watching television about suffering. But as as m- many of us so far. Uh, might not know someone who's sick. And so as I'm reading Musil, I'm thinking, my goodness, he, he would understand um, the the unreality of, of much of this. Well, I'll tell you, he he was writing this in the 20s, but I, I think you mentioned that he, he kind of came of age in the, well, I believe in the 1880s, 1890s, where this modernism was really kind of coming into its own. And why was it coming into its own? I mean, what was, what was happening, particularly here in the middle of Europe, in Vienna, very cultured city? We talked last episode about sort of the the, the burgeoning and disquiet happening there with all the various nationalities and how it was a Frankenstein state. But really, the, the city of Vienna really is, um, in a strange way, the main hero here because we have uh, we have Ulrich, you know, coming into the city, um, and the city we have to remember has exploded, exploded in population right around the time of this novel. It's 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 uh, it went from being a very kind of a relatively small city or a large town to being this metropolis. You know, the huge waves of uh, people just migrating to the city. Uh, you have the the ring the, the that new street that they sort of the architects you know design around Vienna and then built outwards from that and you had this incredible influx of of people from all corners of the of the empire and we're talking about far away corners you know just I think the last time I, I counted 12 nationalities so there's this incredible mixture and that just the sheer amount of people increasing to such a degree that you have this this modern mindset kind of setting in, this fragmentation, this inability to deal with all this noise and clatter and people. Um, you have Freud, of course, right in the center of that. And Freud is so important in this book, even though he's, I don't believe he's mentioned at all. Um, but this whole idea of having such a uh, you know, dark sort of underside to what you see on the outside, um, or just at least having depths, you know, inner depths. And you, you, there's there's a little bit of an antecedent to this in, in literature. You know, you have your um, Rilke wrote his only novel, um, The Notebooks of uh, Malte Lorenz Brigge, uh, where there's a similar situation where this young, I believe it was a Danish aristocrat, who goes to Paris and he has no no defenses like we do. We we have we all you know we're all city people. We have these defenses. We're walking around. We were born into cities, most of us, or many of us, I should say. Um, and so we we have this kind of built-in 
helmet, you know, internal helmet for the soul or whatever you want to call it, that sort of shields us from all this craziness that's going on outside in the city. You know, the traffic, the the, the crime, the pollution, just the, the multiplicity of, of images bombarding you from every direction. We, we've learned how to live that way. We call it cosmopolitanism. We actually value it. Uh, but, but early on in early modernism, um, they were just working it out. I mean, Ulrich, in a sense, already has that. He's, 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 he comes prepared to Vienna. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody like Rilke's hero, uh, Brigga, he does not have these defenses. And uh, so if you want to sort of see how, how modernism developed, you, it's a great sort of way of dealing with it. Just read Rilke's novel and then read, uh, or at least think about Musil, because many of us already read it. Um, you can see the transition there slowly becoming... It becomes more the norm living in the city, but but really, it was it's it's a new thing. It's a new thing for Ulrich. It's a new thing for everybody in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they're all struggling to deal with this. Absolutely, and and to pick up on two threads, um, Freud is mentioned, and I'll I'll read something quickly that references Freud. But oh, this idea, how come I missed it? <laughs> but 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 this idea of fragmentation, um, which which I think is his. Uh, his observations on that are are still, I think, so relevant. Um, but with the caveat that you, that you just gave, that we also now have decades of absorbing fragmentation, so it doesn't seem as jarring. But here's here's a quote from uh, Arnheim, or I shouldn't say a quote from Arnheim, but a, a passage that um, is in one of these mini essays um, about about Arnheim and his world, and I. I hope that you speak a little bit more, Roman, on your thoughts on Arnheim, because I, I remember oh, sure. you had some some cool thoughts in him. But so there's um, this observation that fragmentation everywhere, extremes without connections, Stendhal, Balzac, and Flaubert have already created the epic of the new mechanized social and inner life, while the demonic substrata of our lives have been laid bare by Dostoevsky, Strindberg, and Freud. Strindberg, yeah. Yep. We who live today have a deep sense that there is nothing left for us to do. And, and it's amazing that that was written in whatever, the 20s. Mm. I have felt that numerous times. I felt it so much as somebody also who who writes a bit that um, wh what can I actually add on to this this pile of, of culture that has been uh, moving forward, at least, you know, in a Western context for centuries. And so um, fragmentation, it, it must have been hitting them um, like a sledgehammer. And it must have been um, so disorienting. I, I, I was watching a documentary last night about one of my heroes, um, the African-American artist, John Michel Basquiat who came of age in the 80s in New York, an incredible painter. And his paintings, in a sense, um, are, are masterpieces of, of addressing the fragmentation, among other things. But, you know, he uses words, he uses images, um, there's elements of collage, and, and he brings it all together. But it's, it's high art, fine art, in a world that's fragmented. Mm. Um, and, and so... I don't think we fully resolved that because, to be frank, I think if you were to put a Basquiat painting on the wall um, with a bunch of fancy people who think they are sophisticated and cosmopolitan, they'd probably still be horrified. 
it's too much for them to absorb. So I, I don't think I don't think we're even comfortable with the fragmentation. Um, right. Well, so you, far. Me you mentioned Arnheim, and Arnheim actually represents uh, this this new the new man. You know, the the new capitalist. You know, he's very wealthy. Uh, he's an industrialist. Uh, he represents the sort of the, the birth of this new version of capitalism. And he's um, he's almost like the anti anti Ulrich. You know, you have Ulrich on one side, and then you have yes. Arnheim on the other side. And Ulrich, you know, the man without quality. He he's an educated person. He he knows a lot about the modern world. Yet he doesn't have qualities like you know. As Walter, his friend, he, he dubs him. Uh, I think he first calls him the man, man without qualities because he just doesn't do anything with the stuff that he has. Arnheim is a man of action, right? He's he he has no doubts or very few self doubts. He he has self confidence, which is very familiar to us from watching you know schmucks like Bezos, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, all these CEOs, these Uber people, you know the you know these people that we put on the pedestal and think that somehow they're above us all because they made all this money. They were, I, don't, I don't know exactly why we do this, but they. They then they then seem to kind of take on that persona. I think I talked about this before, particularly with Bezos's case. You know, I remember him when he was just starting Amazon, seeing pictures of him, and he was just kind of this this lumpy, bookish-looking dude who was just happy to be making um, lots of money suddenly. And then you see him ten years, twenty years, twenty years later, when Amazon is the the behemoth that it is. He's got muscle. He's yeah, he looks yeah. like a freaking. <laughs> I don't know, like he's been injected with some sort of, uh, you know, juice, you know, he's just looks like a totally different person. Um, so oh, Arnheim kind of represents that. He represents that, that, that man of action. I'm, I'll, I don't care about the doubts. I'm doing it. Um, I'm, I got connections in with the Tsar in Russia. I, I got connections with Prussia. Now I'm going to be, you know, getting to the business of Austria here, Austria, Hungary, um, and he travels everywhere. He writes these popular books, you know. So he has no. He he's the one who's dealing with this modernity at the, probably the best, at the expense, at the huge expense, of everybody else, you know. <laughs> yes, like, but like Bezos but we, and all these uh, billionaires. But but he is uncomfortable and jealous to a certain extent of Ulrich. He knows that Ulrich has something. He, it has something that his his Ulrich's object. Ulrich's got a dick. Pardon Say again. Humanity. He's got yeah. a dick. Ulrich's yeah. got a dick. I mean, Arnheim and uh, Diotima, you know, the this this right. lady of the campaign, the parallel campaign, they have this relationship that borders on maybe becoming something serious, but never does. It's always platonic, and they they're and so I think I think what. What you pointed out that Arnheim is a little bit jealous of Ulrich because Ulrich is a ladies' man. He knows how to seduce them. He almost doesn't have to do anything except just show up and, and be himself. Um, you know, so I think I think Arnheim is definitely jealous of that. And and Ulrich is also, uh, you know, he kind of holds his cards back a little bit. He's very philosophical, and they have a very pivotal conversation towards the end of Volume One, where Arnheim basically invites. He wants to co-opt Ulrich. He wants to say, "Come, you know, join me in my capitalist enterprise. Become part of my, uh, you know, machinery here, and you will have lots of money and success. Exactly what you were looking for." And the pivotal moment of the novel, I think, is when Ulrich says, "Fuck you! No, I'm not doing that." 
you know, so he turns away from this almost like a, it's almost like a lifeline. If you look at it from a societal point of view, from just a general outsider point of view, why wouldn't you? If Jeff Bezos kind of came down and said, hey, man, you're I really appreciate your intellect. Come work for me. I'll place you really high up there. You'll have everything you need. How many of us will say no? Right. You know, so here here's um, to kind of flesh that out even further. So here's an exchange between um Arnheim and Diotima. So, she, so um, he says to her, um, "We must try to recover unreality. Reality is no longer reality. No longer makes sense." Again, this theme of of the unreality of of our current existence. And then um, Diotima says, uh, "Well, Ulrich would would not." Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm I'm. This is a conversation between Diotima and Ulrich. And so okay. Ulrich says, we must recover on reality. Reality is no longer makes sense. And Diotima says, well, Arnheim, you know, wouldn't agree with that. And he says, well, I know that. He says, that's the difference between him and me. So this is Ulrich speaking. Mm. He is trying to make the facts, make the fact that he eats, sleeps, and is the great Arnheim and doesn't know whether to marry you or not, means something. And to this end, he has been collecting all the treasures of the mind throughout his life. So I, I would I would argue, I think what you're saying, I would mostly agree with it, but I would also argue that we want to be careful that I don't think Ulrich is particularly happy. Uh, he might say, well, that's a silly American point of view. But I also would say that he's a rather cynical person because we, we do learn that he, he had made three attempts to be a great man, right? And this is another theme in, in the book, you know, the, the idea of the great man. Right. And so he had, he had tried to be a cavalry officer and then a, uh, an engineer and then finally a mathematician. And, and these, didn't, these didn't sort of get him the kind of recognition that he was looking for and or, you know, he discovered the, 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 the hollowness, right? Of such right, a pursuit. right, right, right. So, 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 um, but but I will say that there was injury there, and and there is a I think with any anyone who's perceptive, who's bright, who who thinks for himself, there's always a slight injury between you and society because society can can come at you with waves of absurdity. So it's hard not to become, you know, he how shall I say he almost has an element of being like the kind of punk rockers I remember from the '80s. You know, like it's it's mm. the Reagan years and and, you know, Wall Street's booming and nobody gets that this is all just absurd, you know, um, and in the only true way to to sort of thumb your nose at it is to whatever, to be punk, to be on the edge, to be on right. the margin. But but I remember he, he's he's asked to join the parallel campaign right from the get go, right from the opening of the book. And he does. But yet he doesn't really. He doesn't really contribute anything except just hanging around and being kind of a sounding board to everybody around him. Of course, nobody else contributes anything really. They just all talk about it and and come up with nothing at the end. But but I think but I think because he's the man without qualities and even against his will is actually in tune with the unreality of his time. Mm. He 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 is the source of envy from from several people uh, in the committee. I mean, Arnheim principally, as we mentioned, but also uh, General Stum, who, yes. who yeah. um, he had some contact with when he was a young officer, briefly uh, 
you know, in the Imperial Army. And so I think they they know that he, he although maybe they, they're not attracted to him, but they realize that he he has he has some insight into right. the way things are and the way things are headed. And maybe I think that's why women are also interested in him because he there's a self-assurance, a cynical self-assurance about here's the way things are. I, there, I think he's cynic, I think he's cynical about the way things are being handled. I don't think he's cynical about the world particularly. And I say this because he keeps again in contrast with with Arnheim who who takes all this and this is something Musil really stresses over and over again this, the multiplicity of meanings the multiplicity of possibilities uh, yeah. you know the, the world being irreducible to one interpretation or one viewpoint and Arnheim reduces it to one viewpoint he he his is kind of that's his way of handling this this uncertainty and this you know this burgeoning modernity. He 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 violently wrenches reality to one thing, his thing, and it is there's definitely violence involved there. Not you know physical violence, but but some sort of uh, philosophical violence. I'm not sure exactly what, how to put it. But Ulrich, in contrast, re- leaves that open. He he can't. He cannot come to a period. To the, at the end of the sentence, there is no period at the end of his sentence. You know, he just keeps talking and keeps talking in circles sometimes, and but is always aware that that you can't reduce the multiplicity that he sees around him, which is also increasing drastically. I think that's that's part of the the angst, the anxiety of modern life, this increasing of probabilities and possibilities. And as opposed to your mind keeps once you know wanting to reduce it so you can see, see some sort of road ahead, he's like, nope, nope, it's it's always open, a hundred percent open, and uh, which prevents him from acting. You know, he doesn't do anything. So, so, so here's the question. The question is to to really sort of uh, go to even a higher plane. I really feel like the novel is asking, and it's asking in a in a a, a thousand intriguing and philosophical ways, but how is it that one should live their mm. life? And, and this is a question that I think ties back to my, my pseudo intro, <laughs> speaking of pseudo reality, is how modern life has presented us with, it has crushed most of the uh, little darlings that have helped us direct our life, whether in previous centuries, whether it's chivalry or whether it is um, Christianity or whether it is uh, communism or, um, art. Or, or, or art or or even recently you can argue that for for uh, uh, many men for half the population a certain type of masculinity had been the way that you live your life right mm-hmm. and and now that is coming into conflict with um, you know the other half of the population is saying that's shit with good reason but 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 the question becomes what you know capitalism and, and this is another theme here is centered around Arnheim is, and he struggles with this. So I, I think you're, you're slightly, I, I disagree slightly that he has this rock shore, Jeff Bezos certainty. Uh, he retreats at various times to write these essays and books and he has some castle. So he, he still has this idea that like this sort of weird, like I'm going to be a kind of Renaissance man. I'm going to be a, you know, right. a manufacturer of guns and weapons or whatever his company makes. And then work but on I'm, the peace campaign. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, um, 
so so again, it, it capitalism isn't even able to satisfy the capitalists. So so what is it? And I think you know the the, the current global pandemic that we're all sort of dealing with also it. It's so odd. What it asks you to do is to isolate and do nothing. Now, this is, you know, healthcare workers aside, but it, I mean, it's the perfect modern pandemic. Mm. Do nothing. Mm. Hide, hide, hide from one another and become more atomized. Um, I, I mean, Musil would have, he just would have been like, this is, you know, we would have had book three <laughs> or, or whatever, the third volume. Um, right. So... Well- but but also as 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 Kotsea, Kotsea wrote about this about Musil a little bit. He's got an essay that I read, and he 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 wrote something interesting. It's uh, he calls the Manual of Qualities a book to some extent um, overtaken by history during its writing. So mm-hmm. as he's writing it, things are, are still changing. Right in the twenties and the thirties, as he's moving on to volume two. Um, things are really are really changing, you know. And then and then and then what happens? I think towards the well, I don't want to jump into the second volume, but the second volume really goes nowhere in the sense because I, don't, I think Musil was stuck. He was overtaken by history uh, with the rise of Hitlerism and and you know and the completely changing landscape as that he was living through. Yet he was still writing about the effects of World War One and pre World War One, the, the fragmentation. So in a sense. I I think he couldn't finish it because it was an unfinishable book because the times that he was living in and and like a real writer, he's, you know, as a true writer, he wanted to reflect the times that he was living in. He didn't want to just write some historical novel about what happened 20 years ago or something, you know, Uh, this is a novel, a total novel of, of the era. And because the era was still unfolding as he was, you know, nearing the the end of his life. He really could not find a way for his hero, for Ulrich, to to get out of the Vienna woods, so to speak, to use a metaphor, uh, to some sort of a clarity, because because the entire world was in the middle of the woods and lost, um, you know. So I don't think he offers us any kind of answers at all. He just reflects. Yeah. Um, one of my, if I if I were now, this is. Um, this is, you know, the name of our our podcast is feeling bookish, and you've often emphasized that we don't want to ever lose track of the fact that we're, we're we love reading, and then there's a feel to all of this. So, one one of my kind of personal reactions to to reading Musil is that um, I admire the work, I'm challenged by it, um, but for some reason he doesn't bring me close. He doesn't bring me in, and I I don't I don't feel a personal love yeah. of his work the way I do with Evelyn Waugh or Henry James or, or Faulkner or, or some of these writers who I, I feel comfortable saying I really love them, mm-hmm. you know, where, and, and perhaps, perhaps it's the fact that he does have this military engineer, math, mathematician background. And he, you know, my, my criticism of the work would be that, there's a, f- a phrase that I heard recently by that. What was that awful former editor of Breitbart who used to who helped Donald Trump? I, f- I forget his name, but uh, he was the campaign manager. But he has this. Um, there's a uh, an expression that Donald Trump uses to take control of the media narratives to flood the channel. Mm. 
you just you flood the channel with 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 uh, outrages and talking points and crazy policies noise. and you dre- yeah with noise exactly and so i feel like in a certain way that musil he floods the channel too much with with just an exhaustive list of amazing philosophical nuggets you know characters introducing these amazing themes that i i want to sort of like I want to get more into. I want to hear the characters uh, uh, dig into. I want to see uh, examples of 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 these conflicts in the characters playing out. There's too much going on, and it it can be exhausting. Yeah, and it um, I I I can't. You know, I read that pas- passage about fragmentation in art. You know, that's probably three three novels worth of thematic material right there. Oh, my and God, just, yes, please. And, and he just tosses that off yeah. in a casual conversation between two characters and moves on to, you know, a dozen other philosophical um, it's a very, it's issues. a very, it's a, like I think I described to you like 10 years ago when you were asking me about this book, I, I told you, yeah, I described to you as a, it's a cerebral Proust. It's very cerebral. There, there's definitely, I mean, he studied philosophy. He uh, remember he, he comes out of an uh, of a of an era that produced logical positivism. Uh, in fact, the very you know city that he lived in produced it. Um, and by logical positivism, I mean people who um, and philosophers and scientists uh, at the beginning of the 20th century who kind of wanted to do away with the, with I guess metaphysics in general, but they just wanted more concrete stuff. You know, so your science it's giving us re- technology is giving us real results. Let's bring our nose down away, you know, away from the clouds to Earth, and just deal with engineering, with math. Uh, this is the stuff that gives us real knowledge and a real handle on the modern world. Yes. And Musil, as much as he comes from that background, he also realizes that the second half of the equation, the soul, which rears its uh, ephemeral head here and there throughout the book, actually everywhere throughout the book, uh, the soul cannot be forgotten. Even though you can put it in prison, you can sort of whitewash it with with uh, logic. Um, it will not be. It will, it will erupt in 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 things like Moosebrugger, in the insanity of you know of uh, I don't know like Clarissa and Walter representing the art world and how it really can't protect them. But Clarissa, man, Clarissa is. Uh, I think actually Musil's female characters is where you find this more fleshed out. Uh, characters, you know, psychological characters. Um, I think in in people like Clarissa, particularly, um, you got Bonadea, you have Diotima, um, and of course the very crucial uh, uh, Ulrich's first l- real love affair with a, a a major's wife, I believe, or something like that. I believe it's chapter thirty-two, really early on, and the chapter title actually tells you how how important it is. It's a crucial chapter. It actually says something like that, you know. Um, he has this love affair early on where he – this this logical mathemat- mathematician, you know, engineer, you know, future maybe a mathematician engineer, but he's, he's got this mentality. He finds this 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 love that transcends that, that, that sort of touches his soul uh, to use, you know, a metaphor. Um, and by the way, we're using metaphors a lot because Musil used a lot of metaphors. In fact, this book is really a, a study in in how you how do you how do you 
represent the concrete world that we have outside of our heads in metaphors that are inside of our heads. So there's all these, all these, you know, like we have Arnheim and Ulrich being two, and the yin and the yang, so to speak. There's a lot of yin and yanging all over the place here. But I think to your point, Rob, is that it's in the female characters that that uh, Musil, who was eventually, he became an experimental psychologist. So this guy is, he really has the tools to sort of delve inside people's heads. And strangely enough, or perhaps not strangely, I don't know, he he does it better than anything with his female characters. I don't know if you found that, but I, I certainly did. And again, just to mention Clarissa, she really goes full hog transformation. She she begins, she, and she meets Walter, who's sort of, uh, uh, I guess, Ulrich's uh, an alter ego type of person. They were new childhood friends, but they're a little bit, you know, cool towards each other now as adults. Remember, they're they're not really that young anymore, right? They're in the mid-30s, I believe. Right. Uh, Walter's something like 34, so Ulrich's got to be around the same age. Um, but Clarissa meets Walter when when I think she's 15, right? And so and so now she's in her mid-20s. It's, I think it's eight years later. Uh, and she, she wants nothing to do with Walter. She doesn't want to have sex with him. Walter wants a child to sort of bring Clarissa closer to him. She does not want to. She's not. They're not having sex apparently. Um, and interestingly enough, when when Walter actually calls Ulrich the man with our qualities in an early chapter, that that designation is what awakes Clarissa's um, you know sort of interest in Ulrich. She becomes kind of fascinated with Ulrich. She of course has no has known about him for since since she, she knew Walter, but now she becomes romantically interested in him. Right, and then and then she defends Musburger. She 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 puts Musburger on this pedestal like he's some sort of a uh, you know Nietzschean Ubermensch, <laughs> uh, and she wants to liberate him through music. And one of, in fact, I think probably the my favorite my favorite scene in the in this volume one is when Walter and Clarissa are playing the piano together. I believe they're playing Beethoven or something like that, and and this 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 chapter. Is just interspersed with these, uh, with her flights of fancy as she's playing. She's thinking about Moosebrugger and how she's going to liberate him through music, and, <laughs> and and Walter, meanwhile, is is thinking about having a child, and so he's playing. Is gets a little bit worse, and she senses it, and you can and their buttocks heave together on the on the piano stool. I just I just very clear yeah. picture of them doing this, and I really really enjoyed that that chapter. But Clarissa, I think, is is in a strange way. Uh, it was kind of a key way for me to sort of understand what's going on with all yeah. these characters, you know, Clarissa yeah. and and Diotima as well. Yeah, because no, Diotima uh, is the bourgeoisie. She is she's the bourgeois woman. She's married to Tuzi, chief inspector, not chief inspector, chief whatever, chief section, uh, uh, Tuzi, who who is, uh, you know, he's a common man. He rose in the yeah. ranks. He's not a he's not a He's not the nobility or anything like that. He's just is a common guy, Italian, which is a, a small minority of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But he rises to this very high level. In fact, I, I wrote it somewhere, but I, I don't, I can't find it right now. There's a, there's a point where it's mentioned that he is one of the few people who can sort of decide the fate of Europe, which really freaked me out a little bit, you know, because he's not a very, he's not a very nice character. Um. Um, Tuzi is a commoner in a position of authority 
right, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and quote, here's the quote, one of the few men who could influence the fate of Europe. That's the exact quote. Um, you know, well, <laughs> a little scary there. <laughs> well, I, I think we can all relate about um, inadequate men who are currently in positions <laughs> of great power. Yes. Um, but, but a few thoughts on Walter and Clarissa. Um, I think your, your observations there were, were fascinating. Um, one, one is, it's probably the most devastating, uh, in terms of Walter, one of the most devastating pictures of a dilettante I have, mm. I have ever read. Yes. I mean, yes. Musil just crushed Walter. And it also, it made me think a little bit like Walter could have been a character in Thomas Bernhard's The Loser. He could have mm. been one of those like yes. People, yes. who people who realized that Glenn Gould uh, is so... Who were destroyed so, by Glenn Gould's genius. Yes. Right, exactly. Yes. yes. So, uh, I mean, obviously Bernhard would have known Musil uh, backward and forward. Um, so that observation. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, most of the female characters in this book become sexually interested in uh, Ulrich. And there's a quote by Diotima when she's talking to Arnheim, and I think which kind of sums up probably this attraction, is she said, Ulrich is a man possessed who was not interested in possessing anything. Mm -hmm. So he's this, right, he's this um, hard to get, hard to pin down person, you know, um, and, and this is attractive to all of us in a certain way, a person who, there's a mystery about him, and he he seems to have he everything. Doesn't, he doesn't he doesn't stoop to anyone. He doesn't right. sort of let anyone in just because he wants their favors or something, or he wants their charms or whatever. He doesn't he doesn't go towards people. He just presents himself, and he's such a magnetic personality that people are yes. attracted to him. He doesn't yes. have to go to them. He just exactly. And things happen to him. I mean, he's kind of a happy-go-lucky. I mean, he gets introduced to high society through his father, the lawyer. He gets into the, basically the highest, you know, uh, social level in Vienna. He he's hobnobbing with Count Leinsdorf. Uh, you know, he's and in fact Count Leinsdorf at some at one point starts counting on Ulrich for advice, or he they all seem to kind of like him for almost no apparent reason that we can see. Uh, except maybe he's got this, like you pointed out, this this weird magnetism where he doesn't try to he doesn't try to get people people just see him and like oh interesting what, what yeah. what's what's going on inside this guy you know totally plus he's, um, yeah, I think he's probably physically attractive and he's in good shape and he's a bachelor which you know is yep. a good combo <laughs> for attracting women i guess <laughs> um you know in another thought on clarissa is that you know she she uh, initially is attracted to this sense of potential in walter and and she pushes him, you know, and she mm -hmm. says, you know, do this, become, become singular and, and, and extraordinary. And when she realized that he is a dilettante, you know, she's, she's no longer interested in him. But I think it also, it, it, it illustrates what isn't talked about much in the book, but we, we now with our modern perspective can see that as, you know, cosmopolitan and sophisticated Vienna was in 1914, for a very, very intelligent woman, there still were very, very few avenues that you could choose. So we're, we're not, we're talking about, um, and the same with even uh, Diotima, she's able to use her position as the wife of a wealthy um, uh, functionary to, to host the parallel campaign and to, to, to have access to these leaders and to influence events, but she has to do it as the wife of, you know, Minister Tuzi. And so you, 
you can only imagine the the frustration and the sense of you know stunted potential where you you have to get things done through these men many of which are you know boorish or dilettantes or you know um clueless and mm-hmm. and so so um but I think you know, for for a, a man of nineteen fourteen, nineteen twenty, nineteen twenty five, or whatever, he does seem to have um, an empathy uh, towards his female characters that isn't universal I, of I, of the right the writers I, I of that you, time. I, I again go back to Clarissa. I think I think you know many PhD theses could be written about her because she's fa- a fascinating character. I mean, she was abused early on, I believe, by Mindgeist, this this character who shows up later on. She was kind of abused. It's it's pretty straightforwardly hinted at, maybe even more than hinted at. And then she has this weird. She develops this weird sensuality that's like a post-abuse mindset. You know, um, she she just like I don't know. She's just a she just goes mad. She's a mad. She has these mad fantasies about Moosebrugger, and she. Uh, she towards the end of the novel, she wants to have Ulrich's child. She comes comes to him and just basically says, "I want to have your child. He'll be the world's savior." So there's some sort of weird, you know, Jesus thing going on here with her. She Ooh. thinks she's going to give birth to Jesus, the next Jesus, uh, with Ulrich. You know, yeah. So, and there there is a there is a uh, a small theme about the idea of um, redeemer and redemption mm-hmm. and. Um, which which naturally follows from this lack of from this feeling of a you know lack of spirit or lack of religion. Um, before we forget, Roman, I, I I do want to bring up the fact that I think you wanted to uh, introduce some music. Oh my um, gosh! To, yes. And and uh, to kind of help us get more in the mood or or in the time of uh, Habsburg Vienna. Yeah. Well, as, as I mentioned, I think last episode um, that it, it really helped me to sort of understand uh, the mentality that Musil is writing about. Because, you know, you see words on the page, there's very little connection with the ear unless you're James Joyce or something and you write beautifully musical prose like in Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses. <clears throat> this is not musical prose. And, you know, maybe in German uh, it's got some some of that musicality, but we certainly – I mean the translation is very good, but, you know, you don't hear that. There's no – it doesn't just pop off the page like that. So, with that in mind, I wanted to play a piece by Alban Berg that was composed in 1913 when this novel takes place. Now, obviously, Musil is writing in the 20s, but still, it gives you an idea of what kind of, you know, if, if let's say, Ulrich and, uh, and uh, you know, Walter and Clarissa went to the, to the symphony or to the music hall, they, um, they would have, might have heard this piece. It was a new piece by Alban Berg. He wrote it for uh, Peter Altenberg, who um, I mentioned last time, I believe he was um, probably the most famous of the coffeehouse wits in Vienna. Um, you know, he, he wore sandals with no socks. He had all these weird eccentricities. Women flocked to him. Uh, men liked him. Uh, Robert Musil knew him. Everybody who was anybody in Vienna knew him. He was one of those characters that you know that that, that the whole city kind of knows, uh, which we don't have anymore that much. Um, so he you know, he would hang out in coffee houses and just go sleep in his tiny little hotel room. But all day long he would spend in the coffee houses or going to the theater. And he wrote these little short pieces. He became famous for them. In fact, he started the whole genre of the short, you know, short feuilleton, the short piece that became so popular 
in Vienna around that time, which is something I'd like to talk to Janice uh, Grill. We'll have her in a few weeks on our podcast for volume two. Um, I, I want to see how, what the heck's going on with Musil writing this huge freaking book and then in the middle of this, well, I mean, towards the end really of this um, movement of short, short, short stuff. So that'll be interesting to find out. So anyway, so, so Albenberg writes this piece for Peter Altenberg, this Bohemian's Bohemian. And this is what it sounds like. Listen to just the, the, way, the, the way it eerily begins and begins to just kind of gives you the sense of, you know, hey, <laughs> World War One is about to break. You can sort of almost tell, even though, of course, Altenberg didn't know at the time. But that's that's modern Vienna, the sound of modern Vienna. Boom. Nice. Let's listen. Well, there you go. See, so you, you, you could hear the sort of the eerie, the eeriness of it, the quietness, the sort of the, the nod towards the short form. Uh, it's a it's a song. It's a song cycle, I believe, for Peter Altenberg. So there's some words coming up too. Um, but uh, you know, again, remember Schoenberg is is hanging around. Uh, Weber, Webern is hanging around. These are people who invented the twelve tone. Late, you know, later on, Schoenberg did. Um, but they're already writing atonal music that sounds very, very modern, even to us. Um, and like, you know, going back to what you said, Rob, earlier, is that we're still dealing with this. Well, listen to this stuff. Listen to some of the music composed around that time, and you'll understand that even to your ears, to our postmodern, post-postmodern, whatever it is now we're at, ears, it still sounds um, new. Yeah, it yeah. And it's different. You know? And and this um, w- one of my own sort of um, personal crusades is to continue to point out to people how how backward and how unprogressive um, the novel and literature continue to be when you compare them to what has been done and what continues to be done in music. I mean, you're talking about, I painting. mean, people, yeah. painting, I was just mentioning Basquiat, I, you know, so, so this is something that um, continues to kind of irk me that um, there seems to be such resistance and such a conservative approach to literature. And I, mm-hmm. I blame, I blame the MFA programs and I blame the publishing industry that refuses to take a chance on, on, on publishing literature that that will take us beyond um, the 19th century novel or the modernist novel, as much as I yeah. love them, as yeah. much as I do. Well, And uh, so, um, yeah. 
yeah, there, there's a there's a a, a fusty um, reactionary element in uh, particularly in contemporary American literature. Yeah, I don't know exactly what's causing it, but I, it's definitely there. I mean, even William Burroughs, like in the '60s and '70s, he said something. Yes, exactly. Like, he said something like, you know, literature is 50 years behind painting. And it, it, I think it's even worse now. It probably, yeah, yeah. It's certainly, though. I mean, look, there. If if you're willing to look, their stuff is out there. A lot of it is uh, outside of the Anglo Anglo sphere. You know, it's a, it's written in, in in languages other than English. Uh, and we tend to be kind of blind to that, even though we love literature and translation, of course, and maybe we're not the best examples of that. But in general, people tend to, um, unless it's like some sort of you know, international bestseller, like Perfume, Peter Susskind's Perfume was a huge bestseller. You know, my wife read it. She normally would never read something in translation, not on purpose, just it doesn't attract her. Um, but unless you have this kind of weird big seller that, again, uses very 19th century uh, novelistic techniques, nothing new there. Um, it's just, you know, dead on arrival. Any kind of interesting experiment um, may, might be seen by <laughs> you know, under 500 people, uh, which is really nothing, not even a drop in the bucket nowadays. Um, and so people also get you know, discouraged. Writers, but you know, writers who have potentially uh, amazing literature probably get discouraged from even attempting to write stuff like that because, um, you know, like – like George Carlin, my favorite comedian, uh, he he kind of I mean, I hate to say this because it sounds bad, but it's I think it's it's largely true. It's not the politicians that suck. It's the public that sucks. So it's not the writers that suck. It's the readers that suck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so um, so I mean, I, I don't mean to turn the, the tables on, on, on us all because we are readers in the public. But it's something I think that we really, really should keep in mind. Yeah, and and if you're looking for, I, I think a couple of books that just come to mind. Looking at my bookshelf right here is you know Maggie Nelson, The Argonauts, mm. is a uh, is an innovative and I think a new look at at you know the potential of where literature can go. Um, maybe a little less innovative, but I think um, gets away from the standard novel is The Art of Flight by Sergio Patol, the Mexican uh, mm. writer. So, so you know, there, there's stuff no, out it's there. there. It, look, it's there, Rob. We know it's there if we look for it. The experimental fiction that works is there if we look for it. The problem is we don't tend not to look for it. And another problem, I think, is is what Musil points out in this book just by writing it, is that dealing with modernity and, and postmodernity is is – such a, you know, again, to use this overtired word, such a fragment, fragmenting kind of experience that there, we, we, have no, we have no renaissance people left. There's nobody out there who knows most of the stuff that's worth knowing in the world. I know. It's amazing. You know, it's, yeah. It's impossible because just too much of it. Um, and so we don't we, – we, we, I, think, I think the last novel for me that did that and really sort of blew apart language and, and sort of put it back together, of course, is Finnegan's Wake, James Joyce. Yeah. Um, but it seems, you know, people like Nabokov and pe other you know, highly esteemed people pointed this out, that it seems to be a bit of a dead end. Uh, you know, we, we, we really don't know how to go beyond Finnegan's Wake. Or we really can't because even Finnegan's Wake is for us still uh, uh, still a problematic text because it's – you know, it requires a different type of reader. It's not your average reader that can tackle tackle fitting his wake. Though I would argue that, in fact, it is 
possible. It's just being approached uh, in a very wrong way by most people. Um, but that's a different topic. So, you know, yeah. it's, 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 and Finnegan's Wake was written, yeah, in 17 years, done in 1939, which is apropos to our discussion because this is exactly when, when Musil ran out of gas, when he realized that there's nowhere to, there's, there's no way to finish this novel. It's unfinishable yeah. because there's no, the reality is, is so, one way it's a one-way street there's no way to sort of loop around and, and make an end to it i mean joyce looped around and made an end of the beginning so you begin again there is no end there's no beginning there's a circular text uh so that that was one way for him to sort of finish an unfinishable book um Musil didn't have that option because you know of various structural reasons and obviously he wasn't a joyce yeah. um but again, I, I, I'm still on the lookout for not the total novel, because I don't think that's possible. It's just literally impossible. Um, uh, oh, thank you, Heston. Infinite Jest also does the circular <laughs> thing. Yes. Infinite Jest was actually a book that I, I, I think came close again to sort of having our our modern world reflected right back at us through yeah, through, no. through text. Um, I certainly, I certainly uh, lived with that book for many months, and it became a part of me. Uh, you know, at some point, Rob, you and I really have to talk on the podcast about our infinite jest experiences because we yeah, lived, why not? We yeah. lived around the corner from the tennis, from the fictional tennis academy, from the Enfield Tennis Academy. We I, lived around I, the corner from the actual drug rehab place, right? And I worked at the drug rehab place, right? Right. So we, yeah. we had this really incredibly personal uh, connection to this book, so which I'm surely added to our enjoyment of it. Plus, we also read it when we had our reading chops in full bloom, you know, in our twenties. <laughs> um, um, so it's still happening, yeah. but, but again, yeah. it drips and drops here and there. And, and you have to be, you have to be a literary bloodhound to find it uh, in, you know, you, there's certain people like, you know, Andre from the Untranslated and uh, a bunch of others who kind of help you help to point the way, but it's Frank method. It's tiny. It's, it's really like we talked the other day, the podcast it's it, it's it's on the sidelines of culture it's no longer when ulysses was published boom boom big deal you know everybody read it or everybody wanted to read it uh people were talking about it you know the milkman was talking about it because because his son <laughs> was hiding it under his bed for the dirty sections you know it doesn't we don't have books like that anymore when we do they're losers like what whatever the hell that that stupid book that they published uh, somebody published about the mexican immigrant that was claimed to be Right, cultural appropriation. So we, we just hear this negative stuff about literature. That's you know, this book was and got all these advances and got like lots of money for the author, and yet is it cultural appropriation? Just, I mean, and, and bogus yeah. discussions. I mean, for me, from the literary perspective, they're just they're irrelevant. Maybe from a cultural perspective, sure they're relevant, but not from a literary perspective, right? Yeah, and and and. The idea that a true artist would sit around and they're watching CNN or they're reading the New York Times and say, wow, this particular sociological issue, it, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to sit down for the next four years and write a novel to to bring more empathy to this particular issue. You know, let the journalists do that. Artists need to step out of time, need mm. to I mean, we don't need novelists to help us have more empathy for certain aspects of our society. I, I just think that is that is so ridiculous. 
And and I'm going to vent here a little bit more. What what we're seeing now that we're all sort of in our homes and people are are turning to media more than they ever did just for solace or news or information, I, I continue to see these tweets or these videos where um, there was one of Yo-Yo Ma playing, you know, Bach mm. cello suites. Right, right, right. Love them. They've they've helped me throughout my life. But this idea that now, while we're shut in, we can seek solace from music and literature. I don't seek solace from from art. I get many things. Solace, you know, may may come to me. But the idea that I just want to be calmed down, no, and so- no, yeah, and soothed. By I mean, art. there is, there is, it, a, there is a, some, there's a, I think a, there's a function of art that does that, but it's far it's from a, being the main function. Exactly. This might be a, 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 a useful or a welcome, uh, you know, piece of the experience, but at the, at the risk of offending anyone, I think it's slightly juvenile yeah. to, to have that sort of approach. I totally um, agree. I think literature, literature should give you should give you tools to deal with reality, not in kind of, you know, not to numb you or to distract you, but to actually reflect the world that we live in, in some way that's, that's meaningful. Um, it's just incredibly hard to do it in, in any kind of totality because you can, you can take, easily take one section of, of culture, let's say, you know, war or, or immigration or something like that and, and write specifically about that. But, but as far as getting every all the little pieces together, maybe that's I mean, maybe that's what Musil is trying to say is that it's impossible to do. Um, right. He I couldn't mean, do if, it. If, if there's some, you know, budding novelist in their apartment is like, wow, I'm going to write a novel about COVID-19. I mean, you need to kind of check your head a little bit and kind of consider, you know, what you're about as an artist. I mean, I can understand if if you you have major issues that 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 are in your soul, that are, are permeating your entire being. And, and, and perhaps uh, this, 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 you could fictionalize aspects of a pandemic for, for the purposes of your narrative or whatever. But come on, people, we, we need people to go deeper. You know, I think yeah. we, do look, we do look to artists to help us fathom greater mysteries than, you know, Trump's policies at the Mexican border. Do you know what I mean? We, we have, I think right. we have pl- plenty of journalists who can do that. But I, I do want to say two quick things because I know we're we're probably getting um, above our, our usual time here. One quick thing that we didn't point out, which is um, the, the formal – one of the formal pieces or one of the um, formal structures of this novel is that um, what he does with various chapters is they're, they're almost just straight-up essays. So you'll have a chapter where two characters are – are, uh, you know, in some ways, in a slow way, furthering the plot, you know, meeting and talking, but they start bringing up a certain theme. And then in the the next uh, chapter, he just almost has a straight up standalone essay that goes deep into um, an issue that the characters were talking about in a previous chapter. I I, I love that. Uh, uh, Proust does it a little bit in his uh, in, In Search of Lost Time. So that's a really pleasing and interesting part of the book. And then I'll just sort of my kind of closing thought is, again, this this the amazing relevance of his observations about our current situation and the fact that we can't um, we can't count or depend. There's no sure foundation. He writes um, uh, every generation. 
treats the life into which it is born as firmly established, except for those few things it is interested in changing. This is practical, but it's wrong. The world can be changed in all directions at any moment, or at least in any direction it chooses. It's in the world's nature. Wouldn't it be more original to try to live, not as a definite person in a definite world where only a few buttons need adjusting, what we call evolution, but rather to behave from the start as someone born to change, surrounded by a world created to change, roughly like a drop of water inside a cloud. I mean, it's beautiful. Mm. It's mm. It, it's to to write that's that passage is worth reading. You see, that's yeah, I know. These kinds of insights are sprinkled throughout the novel, and again, it's not. Like you said, it doesn't have the, the you know, that doesn't give us that feeling of like you're reading something really entertaining and, and engrossing. It's 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 a hard read sometimes because of these breaks of the essayism, uh, you know, and it's, it's nothing really particularly happens. And it's not an easy book to read. It's also a little depressing if you if you read a, you know at large chunks because things just tend to go to shit in it. Not, or at least nothing happens, which is the equivalent of going to shit. Um, and I, you know, I remember when I first read this. This was in the '90s, in the mid to early '90s. I read it in that abridged sort of uh, edition prior to this new, new translation. And so it was only, uh, I think, part of volume one. And I, I was a younger person. You know, I was in my 30s, maybe early 30s. And I remember thinking, this is really. Um, I'm really enjoying this. This is interesting. I, I, you know, I was, uh, I'm a philosophically minded guy anyway, so I was really enjoying that those the, the essay, es, essayistic kind of philosophical uh, chapters. Um, but it, it 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 because it didn't really end and there was no plot line per se. I I kind of like said, well, interesting, but 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 what? And then this 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 new translation, which does include volume two, and kind of keeps going and going. Um, gave me a very different perspective. It was harder to read at my age now, at 49, than it was when I was in my 30s. And I don't think it's because reading in general is harder, uh, or particularly this moment in time with the pandemic, it's harder to concentrate on reading. But in general, it, I, I enjoyed it more on my first read than on my second read, which is interesting because usually it's to reverse. And even though I got much more understanding on my second reading, um, way more, really. I really didn't understand in my first read. Uh, what I got from my first reading was a, a feeling of like I, I sort of got introduced to Vienna around the turn of the century. Uh, it was an interesting character, Ulrich. I kind of sort of, I hate to say this in public, but I kind of identified with Ulrich as far as a man without qualities because I too – you know, I love science, and I started as a physics major in college, and then I switched. You know, when I realized I couldn't handle the math. Of course, Ulrich does handle the math, but I, I you know, not a total identification here. But I, I also tried a bunch of things. I guess like many young people, so it doesn't make me unique, and and didn't really stick with anything, and and it kind of continued that way. Uh, so I, I almost identified with Ulrich, you know. But now that I've been reading the second volume, and I keep going with Ulrich, I, 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 I lose. My and my identification a little bit more than I did my 30s. You know, you know, it's interesting, and, and we're, we're getting personal here, but um, it's funny you mentioned that identification because I, I do remember, um, like, 
you know, you and I, we went to different colleges and had some different groups of friends, but we would often intersect our friends. And, and I do remember that, um, you know, when I would introduce my sets of friends and I'd say, Hey, you know, this is my friend Roman who I grew up with. I think, uh, the feedback I would always get from people is they were, they were kind of intrigued by you, you know, they, they, they thought that, well, what's going on with this guy? There, there's something I can't quite, uh, put, put, put <laughs> like, my finger like on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I wish I had the same thing with ladies, man. <laughs> um, so, so that's interesting that, that you did identify, um, a bit with that. I can see. Yeah, that. I really did. I, I find myself identify even, 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 uh, the first volume reading it now in the past couple of months, I'm like, wait a second, that, mm, that, that kind of sounds like me. <laughs> You know, I'm a philosophical guy. I have these these essays running through my head pretty much constantly. Um, again, obviously, I'm not comparing myself to. Uh, I mean, Musil is brilliant. I'm I'm far from that. Uh, and Uller seems to be brilliant, but is he really? I, I don't know. But I, I had some yeah. identification with with his his uh, sort of clash with modernity because I've I've always Rob from right from the my first sort of philosophical stirrings when I was stirrings when I was like you know. 15, 16, something like that. Mm -hmm. I've always said to myself, you know, Roman, there's all these interesting systems in the world, all these minds coming up with these things, but you were born in a certain year, certain year you, you were nothing. And then in 1970, you were something. And then you had this consciousness and you, you were suddenly around, you know, in Soviet Russia, just as a consciousness. And then suddenly you were switched to uh, the Middle East and there, there's your consciousness in the Middle East. And then suddenly you were switched to North America and there, there is my consciousness in North America. So I, I yeah. always kind of put very little, not weight, but very little, uh, I didn't lean too much on tradition. I never, I was never that person because maybe because, because my family was so peripatetic and we moved from culture to culture and I, I would always have to be kind of a chameleon and identify with the new culture. But then I was like, why am I identifying with this culture? Because this is just some sort of a suit of clothes. I, I don't want to be putting on somebody else's clothes. I'm just this consciousness that was born in 1970 and I'm, I'm going around the sun and it's all interesting. But I, don't, don't give me your tradition. Don't saddle me with this. Yeah. Don't saddle me with that. I don't want to be shackled by anything. And to this day, I'm kind of like that, which is probably not a good way to live your life. I don't know. But, mm. uh, you know. That's that's my response to this this fragmented world is is to never really buy into anyone's theories about it, yeah. including my own, <laughs> you know, and just to just to kind of live and observe and and hopefully have a good time somewhere in the middle there. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I mean, as you know, I have uh, I bring a deep grounding in you know the Roman Catholic thing, the Irish thing, and so so I, I relate to stuff like this in the sense of of. I, I'm aware that you can wrap yourself in a very comfortable um, tradition. Identity. Yeah, identity. and, it, it, and in fact, that yeah. in fact, the the Catholic Church they actually call the um, all the various beliefs that make up you know the Catholic uh, dogmatic point of view. They they refer to the 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 fact that they all work in union. There's no uh, disconnect between them. They call it a, a seamless garment. So it's mm. the, so it, so literally, it's like a comfortable shirt that you put on, and whatever uh, questions come at you, or whatever moral dilemmas, you know, the church offers a a seamless argument of why you should do this or not do that or believe X Y Z, and when you kind of when you sort of um, toss take off that 
that garment. Um, it's a big world, and uh, yeah, yeah, and you feel and you feel like you're exposed to the elements to, yes. to sort of extend the metaphor. And then and then a lot of people immediately put some other piece of clothing on immediately because they just can't stand that feel of being just this consciousness I, facing the universe. You know, you need some sort of armor, some sort of structure right. around yeah. that consciousness to hold it all together. But I mean, I'm just way too conscious of that of that coverings. Yeah. I've always but, but, been way too conscious. And at the same reason, you know, at the same time when I'm reading Musil and I'm reading Ulrich's thoughts about all these things, because he's thinking about all these things that we're talking about. He's thinking through them, right through the, the novel. There's constant philosophical reflection. Um, and he he can't help but keep doing that. Um, I'm just wondering what are we missing here? What are, what are we what are we missing in this kind of perception? Because in a way, it is a suit of clothes. My my my. Own. There's no there's no way to stand there naked. There's just there's no way to stand naked in the middle of the universe because you always have to have some perspective, some suit of clothes, some sort of covering, yep. because. Otherwise, I think we'd go mad. I think that's what happens to Clarissa. Clarissa becomes so unfocused, and so everything—all these things—rush at her, and she just loses it. You know, I mean, obviously she has other reasons for, for losing it, for sure. But, but again, it's just—I don't know. I, I seem to be—I seem to be. You know, I think whenever you start talking that way, you end up losing yourself in some in some metaphor, which is uh, what Musil was trying to write himself out of. He was trying to get out of that. Um, but all he could do is pile metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor endlessly, and he realized that, and even that, and even that is a metaphor. <laughs> the word yeah. metaphor itself is a metaphor. So we're we're kind of this, you know, it's a bit of a trap. It's a weird funhouse of metaphors. And here we are trying to make sense of it all, and it gets worse with modernity. The more people who pile on top of each other and you know together in cities, the worse it gets. So let's take this time, Rob. Let's take this time of people not going out and let's sort of sort of reflect on that because I think it's really yeah. it's almost it's almost a weird gift in disguise that we have right now with people yep. staying home and ruminating. I, let's let's hope we have some sort of um positive outcome from this, besides obviously defeating the, the pandemic. Right. If it, if if um, this this isolation goes on for months and months and months, and the economy remains essentially shut down, um, it it'll have profound effects. Um, the way that wars have had, you know, I mean, there there are epics that essentially end because of the um, the trauma or the 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 change that occurs with a war. And so, um, if this goes on for months, I think we're we're uh, things could change profoundly, and there's a lot that needs to change, you know, and that yeah, that yeah. that I think we have to we have to just sort of. Um, well, one, one thing for sh- one thing is for sure. Yeah. Whoever's living through this time, from young kids to to older people, I think the realization that we live on a on a on a one piece of rock, all yeah. of us are, are circling sure around the sun on this one piece of rock. Uh, we're all in it together. It's one boat. There's no countries. There's no China. There's no America. No Russia. It's just the borders are bullshit. The borders are in our minds. Um, we seem we are one species. We have no subspecies like many other animals. We're just one species. Uh, and you know maybe this will be some sort of a, a, a the dawn of of a global consciousness, uh, which by God we need. You know. Um, 
we haven't talked about we we have talked a little bit about soul here, but you know this this is this is something that needs to be maybe reexamined. Uh, Musil's sort of uh, points in the right direction. I think he does point towards this uh, the 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 mistake of throwing away our interiority, our soul, because science has sort of taken over and science is objective, it has no interiority. That's first of all wrong. I think science has has a definite subjectivity. Um, and we need we need to almost come uh, just climb out of this uh, this hole that we've dug into ourselves uh, ourselves we really dug into uh, as as you know as embracing technology and science unquestionably uh, and sort of and, and relinquishing the reins of religion which is good because organized religion in my opinion is BS but the kernel of religion of all religions I think is true. Uh, and we need to sort of refocus our attention on less on the exteriority of of, of the soul, but more the interiority. So, you know, how, how how does it go from the inside with no Catholic, Buddhist, uh, Muslim, Christian clothing? You know, nothing, nothing like forget the clothing. Just let's just look at that. Yeah, I, I would I would uh, in that vein recommend uh, any book by Thomas Merton. Who, who really bridges some of the, the divide between East and West. He was a, a Trappist monk who, who became um, fascinated with Buddhism at the end of his life. And um, right. his, his writings are, are fantastic. So right. I can't recommend the higher. We should, probably, I, we should probably end. Yes, um, we should probably. I mean, I, I really wanted to say more about the whole soul thing. Yeah. I, I also want to say something just very quickly that, uh, that uh, Musil argues against essentialism in this book. He, he basically thinks that there's no way to reduce something to its essence, like a platonic form. You know, what's a horse, for instance, in the platonic sense? Well, there's a, right. some sort of idealized form of a horse somewhere somewhere in this idealized space. And that's why we have real horses. They're just kind of these shadows or copies of, of the idealized right. horse. Well, I think that's horseshit. Uh, I think many people do think that. However... That kind of thinking is what gave rise to our pushing the soul and, and religion aside, or at least the, whatever the sources of religion. See, I'm saying source, and that's that's really essence. So I really I think the way forward is to get to the essence that's essenceless. That that doesn't have any, that doesn't have any essence. I know it's a paradox. Perhaps it's a linguistic thing. Maybe it's a philosophical thing. Maybe it's both. But it's got it's 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 an essence without an essence. That's what we lost, I think, during this fragmentation. Um, and I, uh, speaking of horses, I just have to add Ulrich is is absolutely goes crazy because he lives in an era where a horse can be described yes. as a ge- as a genius, yes. right? And, and I tell you crazy. again quickly, just this is something from our Harvard Square days, Rob. There is yeah. a there was a, a used bookstore in that beautiful era of used bookstores in the eighties in Harvard Square. Twenty four is it twenty six? Yeah, yeah. in one square mile. Anyway, one bookstore right across from the the Grolier bookshop, the the poetry bookshop that's still there, I believe. It is, yeah. But it had these books all over the place, and I remember just breathing in the dust and coughing, but just looking through the books, really enjoying it, and coming across this title, "The Invention of Genius." Uh. That was the title, and I looked at the book a little bit. I didn't buy it, unfortunately. But it, its basic thesis was that that the concept of genius was an invention, uh, I believe, of the 17th century, maybe the 16th. I forget exactly, but it was an invention, and just the idea 
that this concept of genius, which I just took for granted, and we all do, I believe, we think there's you know, such a thing as genius, was an invention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah. didn't have geniuses before. <laughs> <laughs> now, now they're everywhere. They're, they're now on they're Instagram. goddamn everywhere. They're hopping around around the tracks and pretending they're a horse. Exactly. <laughs> all right, dude. It's it's been fun. We'll talk more in our next podcast. And, yeah, we'll have, Janice, um, we'll have Janice Grill in our next podcast. We're gonna wrap up Musil. We're gonna tackle a little bit of volume two, but really we're just gonna talk about the totality of, of what Musil tried to do with with a, a brilliant, wonderful scholar of Musil. So we'll get so much more out of out of this, I think, after talking to Janice. Uh, can't wait. We can't wait. Yep. And, and just to remind everybody, you can follow us on Twitter at FeelBookish. And that's it. And we thank Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer. Yes. Okay. See you guys. Right. Next time.